Hey, welcome to RushCast. My name's Jay Mantis. Thank you very much for being here. We're here every week, and this week we're talking... Well, actually, this year we're talking one album per episode. And this week's episode, we're talking about Hemispheres, a big, big old juggernaut in the Rush catalog. So this will be fun. I've listened to the album a few times this week to kind of freshen up on it. We've got some, uh, some kind of hot takes. Is that what they say? Is that a... That might only be in the sports talk world. Hot take. Uh, I don't have any hot takes. I have a fresh, semi-fresh, t- <laughs> a semi-fresh take on hemispheres. And I brought somebody on to help me. We're bringing on a guest or two each episode, and we got them all lined up. Uh, if you've been listening the last couple of weeks, you know that. It's been going great. Today, I'm having David Sprick on the show. He's calling from Kansas City. How you doing, David? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on again. No problem. I really appreciate you being here. Uh, is is Hemispheres one of your favorite albums? Yeah, it's. Um, it's I'd, I'd say so. If I'm forced to choose, it'd be my favorite. Oh, you're like number one, top top of the line. Yeah, I know it's the best. So I figured if you were doing these, it might be the, <laughs> uh, if I'm going to contribute anything, this might be the one to do it. You know, without directly asking how old you are, were you around when this album came out? I was. I. Uh, I was, I was on your when we did the long songs. I kind of said something, but I was nine when this came out. Oh yeah, and it was out two months when I got it for Christmas from my uncle. He introduced it to me. I listened to it first before he decided to buy it for me. But uh, yeah, I I got to hear it as a young kid and it made quite an impression. So. Was it weird? Was it weird to hear? Like, was it in in general? Was it weird music when you first heard it? Well, yeah, it's my first rush album, and so I heard Hemisphere. It was a, it was on vinyl, and I was. You've seen the album cover. Uh, the outside's in blue with you know the the, the weird brains, and as a, I was nine, so I was open to it. But when you open the middle, it opened up like a book. Uh, it was all black and had the lyrics, and so you could follow along. Uh-huh. And then they, I always remember this too. I know you kind of want to know how people feel, uh, you know, when they when they're experiencing the album. The the sort of first person narrative here is I, they had these fo- black and white photos of the band, and I was shocked there was three of them. And right. they were they were in black and white, and they were wearing these black sort of silk shirts and slacks. And Neil had these Chuck Taylor uh, basketball shoes on with them. <laughs> so I always remember those goofy things. But yeah, I was I my initial reaction was it was unlike anything I'd heard. And you know, later I've been around the album now thirty five, thirty six years. Uh, I I still had that same impression. It, it was sort of unlike any of the other contemporary stuff I was listening to. So this falls right in line with my theory that the first, the album that's released right when you become a fan is the album that you most like. Yeah, and especially at the age I was at, it's very formative when you're learning, right? Just to be uh, impressionable. I think you're right on that. You know, I know there's some. I, I know there's some. I think somebody like you might defy that because you go back and, and research the catalog more. So right. you could you could overturn your own hypothesis there. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're about right on. Um. I, I think, and I, I just just thinking of this now, I think if I had been in your shoes, your Chuck Taylors, and like started, opened up that album and seen the three of them, I would have instantly thought, maybe not as a nine-year-old, but later in life, I would have thought, oh well, there's studio musicians. Clearly, like there are these are the three guys that are in the band, but then there were other guys brought in in the studio. No, uh, that's what I thought. Yeah, I agree with you. That's, that's exactly what I you know. I, I, I had mentioned on the the long songs episode that my uncle was a musician. He was a bass player like you, so he kind of was. 
I had a little bit of mentoring as to what I was experiencing. But he, he said to me that there was just three guys, and, and I thought, I just, you know, a lot of people had that rush sort of reaction. Three guys make this much music. But I, I thought so, too. I thought, well, yeah, you, you'll hear it on the album, but what's the live version going to sound like? <laughs> I was I was skeptical, like, like you would probably have been, too. Sure. So, so you came on the show before, and you did the, our episode about the epics, when we ranked the epics. We did, yeah. Which is uh, an episode I wanted to listen to on my drive up upstate today and didn't get a chance to, uh, because I, wa- I couldn't remember how we ranked them. I remember Cygnus, being, Cygnus Book 2 being close to the top. Well, we both had it as one, and I, yeah. I, was, I thought you would rank it two or three, but um, I don't know why I thought that, but I just did. <laughs> but yeah, we had it both ranked one. Yeah, and, and I... St- the reason I remembered that was while listening to listening to the album this week, I thought this thing is just perfect. It, it's so good. It's it blows everything else out of maybe maybe it doesn't blow twenty one twelve out of the water, but it it's it's a lot more mature. Um, and, and maybe that's yeah. even a bold statement, but uh, it's really really enjoyable. Uh, I think the biggest thing for me, and maybe you can't speak to this because you really hadn't been a fan of the older stuff yet. But if I'm a fan listening to the first three or four albums, you know, I'm I'm anticipating Farewell to Kings. That's a that's a big deal. What comes after twenty one twelve? And then I get hemispheres and I flip it over. I haven't even unwrapped the thing yet, and I see that the first track is twenty something minutes long. That is a big moment for me as a Rush fan. Here we go. We got twenty one twelve point you know, point two. Uh I I can't imagine that feeling to see well, I didn't know. Go ahead. I didn't know. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go. I didn't know it was one song when I first heard it because it was 18, 20 minutes. And you know how they have the the, the time signature changes, I guess you call them. Uh, hopefully, I'm using that right. Uh, where it just seems like it's a different song. So uh, when I first heard it, I thought, oh, this is the second song on side A. Because this is the old vinyl, side A, side B, where you had to flip them over. Yeah. And the whole first side is right. It's, a, it's an epic, all right. Here's something I thought of today, and I'm someone who has spun a record once, twice. I have I have Grace Under Pressure, and I have Moving Pictures on vinyl. I don't even know why or how I have those. Uh, I brought them up to school the where I have the only access to a record player, and I spun those two records and listened to them on vinyl because I wanted to do that once. Um, how is it... Like... I don't even know what I'm trying to ask. Like you flip the 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 sleeve over, the cover, mm-hmm. and you see Cygnus X One Book Two, and that's it. And then it says circumstances after that, right? Are are the um, subtitles listed on the back? No, they would just show. Uh, if I remember right, I haven't. I don't have the vinyl version of it anymore, which is kind of a shame. Um, I believe it just says. It would say like the title and then the number of minutes, if I remember right. And then the the label like Columbia or whatever it was. But right. uh, there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of text on the on the actual album itself. Let's get into the music here. Um is it if for like for you as a listener, is Cygnus just the gem of the record or, or are the others on par for you? Oh, I think Olivia is, is on par with it. Mm-hmm. Those are the two two clear ones. And, you know, the trees and circumstances aren't aren't bad. No, not a bad song in the album, but again, there's only four four songs. But yeah, I think Olivia. I think it's the best instrumental, and I actually for a long time liked it even better than Hemispheres. 
Uh, I probably like them, but about the same now. But isn't it incredible how well balanced the album is? Like, there's no album that is more symmetrical than Hemispheres. You've got no, and I think I, yeah, and I listened to it again actually before I, we talked, and it was I was driving home, and so you know, thirty thirty five minutes you're through it, but and I thought about this, and I, and if you saw the beyond the lighted stage and whatnot, where people say how hard it was though to actually construct that. You can tell they put a lot of thought into it. And I think you're right, it's which the hemisphere songs kinda of deals with balance, which, you know, it is is not lost. I mean when you say that, but I th- I do think you're right. The, the sort of middle tracks circumstances has more of a, a radio style song, you know, chorus and, and whatnot. Trees is a little more rush like and Chris Levy is just kinda of way out there. <laughs> but I think this I think this album is, is you said twenty one twelve is good, but this is kind of their the height of that progressive rock period for them, you know. They they kind of matured into the style, and then as you know, they pivoted with with permanent waves right after. And I think it's like a slow build till they get to this, and they they sort of did what they could do in that, I guess you'd say, category genre of their music selection, and then they pivoted. And I, you know, I I, I know that's your view. I I agree. I think that this is the point, and they've kind of said as much as they did what they could in this style of progressive rock and then they pivoted to something else yeah and i i thought the same thing and you know what it reminded me of talking about this slow build and then we finally peak at hemispheres and then we go in such a different direction with permanent waves um hold your fire to presto <laughs> you know keyboards keyboards <laughs> yeah, keyboards yeah. keyboards keyboards all these synthesizers build up to hold your fire and then boom presto you know, and, and even though Presto had synthesizers on it, there was a very different kind of synthesizer sound. But it was mm-hmm. such a drastic change in in style. Um, that's what it reminds me of, and it, it seems I could argue the band has done that two or three times throughout the career. Um, yeah, I agree with you. I I, do, I think that's a good way to sort of summarize what how they did. But they did pivot. You, I don't think you can. I know I didn't. I, I was too young to probably think too much about it at the time. But the the pivot to permanent ways and then of course moving pictures was quite dramatic from what what they had been did it did just, it feel did it feel kind of uh unnatural at first when you first heard permanent waves uh, yeah a bit but uh, i was open to it like i said they had i was a fan you know they they kind of and and the uh, the stuff was just so good <laughs> to begin with I, I, how can you come <laughs> how can you hear spirit of radio on free will and be like ugh, what is this well, stuff <laughs> yeah i mean if you hear hemispheres you know it's a Rush song, and my wife knows that. She's not a big Rush fan, but she knows when she hears it. Yep, she, they have that distinctive style. But you know, I like the Hemispheres itself. I know we talk. I don't say the same stuff we said in the other one, but if people haven't heard it, I, <clears throat> it's such a long song, and it's got a a nice, you know, the story to it of continuing Cygnus and sort of using old Greek mythology, which, you know, the split brain of emotions and reason and mm-hmm. trying to run society. It's just, uh, at the time, I remember reading the lyrics. If I couldn't even say Dionysus and Apollo. It didn't make any sense to me. I was right. too young. But but when you go back and, and see what they were trying to tell you, they're, they're in some heady, heady philosophical areas there about human nature. So, you know, I, I just appreciate them more. It's 35 years later and, you know, my initial reaction was more for the sound, I think, and Getty's voice and the and the, and the way they played. But I, I've come to appreciate more the the lyrical side of it, I guess. Here's something I'm just thinking about now: is last week on the farewell, a farewell to Kings episode, we kind of thought about, uh, and I'm going to ask my producer right here 
uh, could you grab me the Hemispheres uh, disc, like in the case and all that, if you could? Thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to take a look at that. But last week we talked about A Farewell to Kings, and we kind of realized it was a big foreshadowing towards their more, dare I say, poppy or more radio-friendly um <laughs> Uh, styles yeah. at you know from moving pictures on is what rush was it was more four four it was more predictable forms uh that kind of foreshadowed that with things like madrigal and a closer to the heart thank you very much mm-hmm. i have my cd now uh it almost makes sense because i don't see anything like that on hemispheres i don't listen to hemispheres and go oh this foreshadows their more radio friendly th- um songs even circumstances i think is such a from a musician uh musicianship point of view it is so technical and so uh-huh. dare i say metal <laughs> uh that it doesn't seem like a radio kind of thing it would almost make sense if they were flipped if it went 2112 hemispheres a farewell to kings I, I i think i could argue that is a more seamless transition into uh permanent waves even though that's not how it happened i think that could be that could work yeah i i that was interesting i know i was it Benz? Is that what his name? Benz? Benz. Yeah, yeah, Benz. Yeah, I thought that, you know, he's kind of like you, a music scholar. I, I hadn't thought of that. I, I, Close to the Heart really has got more of the poppy feel. And, yeah, I, that that is interesting. If it, if it could have, who knows? I mean, when the way they write, they could maybe they wrote it um, at the same time or something, somewhat after. That's, That's that true. Is, I mean, they were recorded so close together anyway. Uh, yeah, circumstances. I, I agree. I'm glad you say that because circumstances has uh, before would be the most uh, how should I put it uh, common type of format for a, a radio song as we call it. But but you're right, it is it even. And then of course they, <laughs> you know, everybody always remembers them for the uh, the little couple lines of French in there <laughs> that they sing. But uh, I, the version I actually liked the best of circumstances was the one you you probably heard the snakes and arrows live. Right? You with that tour, I would assume. They played and, it, uh, for for sickness. Yeah, they played it on snakes and arrows, and of course it makes it to the album. They hadn't played that song, I from what I understand, since the late seventies when they first were rolling the Atmospheres tour. So, sickness, uh, book, sickness book two. No, no, no. I'm talking about circumstances. Oh, so, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, yeah, that and it was detuned a little bit, a little heavier, a little grittier. It had did, a really yeah. nice sound. Um, yeah. Surprised that, you know, honestly, I'm surprised they didn't play it since Snakes. It would have been cool to hear again. You know, I, yeah, yeah, because you always get Levia, and that's, there's many variations of that. The, yeah. the exit one, of course, but and then the trees is all over many of their, you know. You know, I, I never thought I'd do this, and I did it this summer. I wanted to hear the trees on R40. I had been so sick of the trees just because it, it, it hits you hard at first. Like, it it hits you as a really good song instantly. And you hear it on the radio and things like that. Um, and I over-listened to it. I, I, I beat it to death. But yeah, predicting the R40 set list, I thought, you know, I haven't heard that live in a long time. And I, I just want to hear it again. Um, wow. I did not get it. I, but I wasn't disappointed with Cygnus, you know? No, yeah, just at least on the prelude, which... It was just amazing. I mean, you can even in the the library that they published, you can hear the crowd reactions as they go through it. I mean, and you know, they don't play that very much. That's all I need, really, is is the the beginning chunk of Cygnus. Yeah, you know, yeah. like uh, it's it's a good chunk of the song too. It's it's not two minutes. It's not a medley. 
that they no. they used it in. So I was very happy with the length, uh, the, the you know the amount of material I got on book two. Uh, yeah, it was what four minutes, and that probably was my favorite part, and, and I loved it. So I was I was just amped when they played it. So another, I was really hoping I was hoping for maybe Livia, but I had heard before. I was like, you, know, I, I kind of didn't want to know the whole list, but I'd, I'd done enough intel that they weren't playing it. So oh, your oh, intel, well. I like your you intel. Know. That's great. Um, <laughs> another another kind of argument against uh, circumstances being a. A radio song, which I, I recognize nobody had labeled it as that. You and I, we yeah. we didn't label it as that. We're just kind of hinting at maybe that. Uh, the closest to it. Yeah, it might be the closest thing. Even uh, though the trees was on the radio, uh, the beginning. I know a lot of you, a lot of my listeners aren't music theory guys. They're not musicians. They don't care. But um, yeah, some of you are, and you do care. the The bridge of circumstances is in eleven. Eleven eight is the time signature, which is one of my favorite time signatures. And a, a time signature rush does very well. It's actually, if you are interested, uh, the the violin solo in "Losing It" is also a nice example of them playing in eleven eight. But instead of uh, in "Losing It," it's eleven meaning six plus five. In circumstances, it's five plus six to get to the eleven. It's it's really cool stuff that they're doing. Well, that's the nice thing about the I think your show because like last week you you two were. You know, obviously musicians know about that. I can learn some of the appreciated brush for the, the, the music connoisseur they are. I mean, I can get the lyrics. It's sort of my area and, and the complexity there, but it's from the musical side, too. It's, that's why I'm, I, I like how you have some of us on who maybe aren't musicians who see it from another angle. But, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I, I do think the circumstances is, is somewhat the most underrated of the four. I mean, it just it's, it's the most forgotten. Right, I I, used to, I listened to it the least too when I when I had it on the record. So. Um, and it's it's kind of it's strange Jay, that you still have two vinyl, and you're half my age. I don't have any vinyl of anything. You don't <laughs> have any gone. vinyl. Oh, that makes me no. feel great. I'm not one of those I vinyl persons. I was raised vinyl was vinyl was good. You know when you had a re, you had a really good player. If you had an average one, boy, it was it wasn't much. Yeah, so. I mean, I, I was just raised. Uh, under a father who insisted that vinyls just didn't sound as good, like like we have CDs, they sound amazing. Why are we going backwards? Uh, yeah, I'm dad, with him. I'm with him. Yeah, he know, complains anytime he sees like we saw an ad today in the mall for like you know this new artist is his vinyl is now here. It's like why the hell do you want the vinyl? You know it's gonna sound like crap in ten years. Uh, but you know that's just how it goes. Uh, I'm looking. Uh, yeah, and there there's like a big refurbished store downtown KC here that's. It's called Josie, and they they advertise the largest vinyl. It's a nice store. It's very hipster urban, but I'm just thinking, good lord, I wouldn't want that. Yeah, I can understand the sentimental value of. Yeah, there's something a little more artsy about it, but uh, I'm not in it for being artsy. I'm in it to hear the music. You know, Uh, that me (laughs) personally. I'm looking, David. I'm looking at the the CD right now, and. it's uh, on the back. I don't. I mean, I assume this is the same as the vinyl version. It says uh-huh. one Cygnus, Hemispheres, Prelude, Apollo, uh, Dionysus, Armageddon. It has them all, and then circumstances yeah, yeah. and the rest. So it does have the subtitles. Yeah, and- on the inside cover. In the inside cover, of the vinyl it had that. That's oh, I see. All the, I thought you meant on the actual physical album itself. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. Which are kooky too when you're imagine you're nine, you're reading 
subtitles of Hemispheres and the 12 parts of La Villa, which all assumes that you have a certain level of education. You just don't know. You just think it's just odd. <laughs> that, that, that to me was, it was, I knew it was over my head, but, but again, the, the sound, which is, I guess, I know you I think you said that last week, which really hit me, which is true. The sound is the important part, right? It's, it's, uh, that's what I was first attracted to. And then the, concepts and the lyrics and all that came later yeah and i i genuinely stand by that that statement i made is that at its core you're listening to music because it sounds cool not not necessarily yeah. because this artist is saying text yeah. you know like the text is well, such a big part yeah. of it um, plus Kenny's voice at the time too it's not like it anymore but it was the pitch was you know plant was big and zeppelin and all that and and uh, i do think your producer's on these. You should go back and check out Zeppelin. It's pretty good stuff too. But I I thought his voice was so different. And uh that that attracted me as well when I first heard Hemispheres. Right. Now here's a I I said the album was symmetrical and balanced. Huh? Right? Yeah. Uh mm-hmm. let's take the two middle tracks, the two shorter ones. Yeah. It's incredible. Number one, it's incredible I didn't realize this before and this is not a big revelation. But the bridges in these two songs are very similar vibe-wise. They very similar instrumentation. Um, yeah. The synthesizer, I imagine, is identical. Just a, a very similar feeling, almost identical feeling in the middle of these two songs. Interestingly enough, I had some listeners email me and say, "Hey, when you do hemispheres, don't talk about the trees for an hour." And no, I mean, no, obviously, I, I would never. <laughs> I would. I would try to space it out evenly among the four songs, but. Uh, I do think the trees is gold in a sense. Like I yeah. do think it as a from a compositional point of view, it is very well constructed, and, mm-hmm. and it sort of mirrors the the text, the poem that goes with it, almost perfectly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm not gonna. Uh, and I looked here. Uh, I have a quote from Neil. He says, "Lyrically, that's a piece of doggerel." He said that in, I think Modern Drummer in 1980. <laughs> And I'll tell you, I, I'm trained as a political scientist, so the po- political analogy of that is not lost to me, and it is, it's simplistic. I mean, it's not, it's oh, not it's, near it's as... it's so straightforward, right? Yeah, it, it, I mean, my 14-year-old could get it. And I think some people really take a lot out of that song as some sort of libertarian anthem, and I just don't go with that. But I like the musical side of it. I think, I think you're right. I think you're onto something. It's... Is a, is a classic in that sense. But isn't it isn't it uh, a testament in a way to, you know, Neil writes a lot of stuff that is not so direct and not so forward, and here he is exactly just laying it out. The you know it's yeah. <laughs> it, it, you know it's like analyzing poetry. Sometimes it doesn't need yeah. to be deep and out there. Sometimes it just needs to be boom, boom, boom. Here's this super yep. simple metaphor, you know, yes. um, or as Neil says, like you know maybe it's not a metaphor. Maybe it's just some trees fighting each other. <laughs> yeah, and, and the weaker ones band together and overpower. Yeah. And and I think after, especially to the complexity of hemispheres and and the uh, Lavia, I think it's, I think there's a little bit of balance there if if you're sticking with your theme. You see what I mean? It's, it's sort of simpler. And then circumstances of the lyrics are more about. It looks to me like Neil, who I believe is the main author on that. Uh, the one I read, re- reread them and listened to them and mold some of the things they've said. It just it's just sort of a a regular story about, you know, his changed circumstances. He's become famous and a rock player, you know, anybody, anybody can relate to that. So, <laughs> right. So there is that balance there, you know, the, the kind of high culture, low, <laughs> lower culture. I don't know. I don't want to go there, but uh, I, I do like, I like your point about a balance on it. 
let's uh, let's swing over to the instrumental and spend some time on it. Uh, La Via is. Uh, I mean, I've said this before. Rio was really the first thing I got to sink my teeth into when I when uh-huh. I decided, oh, I'm I'm gonna like I'm gonna commit to this band, and I think that, uh, you know, even take away the the Alex rant in the middle of it, which is hilarious. I think r- that Rio recording might be my favorite live recording of La Via. I think it's brilliant. Is it? Um, that's what kind of hooked me on that tune and. Yeah, I'm glad. I mean, that's that's what they need to do is is play these older ones because the guys are you know listening to them in the the knots in 2010s and stuff. Right. So. I wonder. I do like that version. I do like that version. I'll just tell you why why you said that. Mine's favorite is on the exit, okay. and the ri- the riff in the beginning instead of the sort of Spanish guitar intro like on the album is really cool. I think. And then at the end, Getty sort of adds some. They're not really lyrics, but there's some vocals vocal sounds to it. That's my favorite live version that they've captured on the album. Now, but, is that the one on the the video, they put like a graphic up that said uh, like a censorship graphic or something? Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I don't know. I, I wish I did, but no. I, 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 I haven't could. seen those recently enough to know. I, I know somebody's <laughs> listening and they know what I'm talking yeah. about. I thought it was when, I thought Alex did a rant or something, but they like tried to make it seem like it was really vulgar, so they censored it. I think it was a big joke. Oh. Okay. Um, I'm yeah. not. Maybe it's not exit, but uh, well, I, I did. You know, and that's always been one of my favorite songs. So I, you know, they, they kind of. I'm so glad in the documentary, which I really like. I uh, hopefully you did too. And when they they said how hard that song was, and the other musicians said they, you know, if you could play that like as a drummer or a guitarist, you were, you were sort of you know next level, and so it made me appreciate it more. But I've you know Alex, said, I think in the '90s I, I ran across before we were talking this week. But he said that they had originally recorded that. They recorded it in Wales, like they did the King's album. And they had practiced it for like a week, and then they did one live take. And it was pretty good, but there were certain parts where it was weak, so they did 30, 40 other ones. <laughs> and, they ended, and they ended up just, just sort of splicing or you know, substituting two portions of it on that original live sort of jam they did. He said they were trying to, it has kind of a live jam feel, mm-hmm. and they wanted to do, have all three in there where they did a live take. Which to me blows my mind because that's an amazing song, uh, and so yeah, I learned that I had not read that obviously from the mid '90s where he's mentioning it. Well, and then he said it was, and then he said once they did it, which is before I forget, he didn't think they'd be able to perform it live. And then he said later, he goes, but now I can you know do it while I'm watching TV because right. <laughs> they practice. So I mean that's that's that goes together with what they said they thought they were writing music that was a little ahead of themselves, and then they would catch up to it as musicians, so which is pretty neat. Um I I often wonder, I'm glad you said that about the, the very beginning, the intro, the classical guitar intro. I I often wonder why they don't do that live. A lot of times they just omit that. Yeah. I well wonder, you see him when you see him live, he's got all his guitars and he's got a they could probably pull it off, but they just don't they have to do some kooky like they did on the what was the one? I think it was Time tour. Machine where they did the dome, boom, right? The bass. Yeah, they did. They did like some weird organs, like from a circus. Yeah, I don't know yeah, what that yeah. was. And then in like the exit when they were first, heck, that they'd only been playing it for a year or two. Yeah. But I think it came out in '80. They had a big riff, and they didn't use this sort of classical or Spanish guitar style. So yeah, I don't know why. I I like it because that to me is the nice thing on La Villa is La Villa, excuse me, is it's a slow 
build up, you know, until they get to the, and then it slows down again and they build back up. So uh, that's, I like that for that reason. I, also uh, a little bit of foreshadowing for the, the, what we have to come in terms of naming instrumentals, you know, for La Via Strangiato ends up being, where's my thing and leave that thing alone and main monkey business, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess it's translated as La Via City, but Strangiato is sort of a Spanish-Italian mashup, so I think it's Strange City or Strange House or something. I but thought it was street. I, I could be wrong. I, I have no idea, but I always thought it was the Strange Street or something. Yeah, well, you based know. on his dreams, but, but when I, again, when you're little and you read that, I thought it was an Italian. I, I didn't know. Right. I, I, <laughs> I never tried to. And, and then I saw, you know, I've seen some interviews with Getty who calls it La Villa. So, you know, I'm not going to over, I'm not going to say he's wrong. But yeah, it, it reminds I've never, me. I've never heard that. It reminds me of the people who will correct, they will very proudly correct me and say, uh, it's YYZ. Well, that, that's, yes, that's yes, not a yes. Rush thing. <laughs> like, I for a long time, I thought that was, oh, Rush wants it to be pronounced YYZ. That's a Canadian thing. <laughs> They're from a yeah, different and, and, country. That's you know that <laughs> they say the letter differently, so I won't get hung up on La Villa, La Villa. Um, it really doesn't make a difference to me. Again, it's about the music. <laughs> yeah, no, and the twelve parts, which which they did show. See, because they had lyrics tracks for everything, and then they I didn't know it was a, uh, an instrumental when I first heard it, and then I just saw these twelve sections, and I had no idea when I was in section three or four when when you're young like that, and, mm-hmm. and then you start to get it. it, it you know, because there's a, rec- I think there's a the Strangiato theme is what they call it or, or whatnot. But yeah, it's a, it's an amazing, amazing song, and I'd say it's one of my two or three favorites still to this day. It's a monster. I listen to, I, I listen to it the most out of all the four songs, you know, by far. Yeah, I, I, I think it's um, the most timeless of the three. <laughs> now, yeah, I'm I, glad you mentioned the documentary because the documentary spent a nice chunk of time. On the guitar solo in La Via, right? Yeah, yeah, and they did with the. Like I said, I, I I'm listening to Rio in 2005 or whatever as a teenager, and I'm I, there were a few things that stood out. Uh, Driven was huge, and I remember Test for Echo was like one of the last albums I found in, in CD uh, stores, and I couldn't yeah. wait to find the original version of Driven. Um, I was a little <laughs> disappointed because it, it didn't have quite as much balls as the uh, Rio version. Everything on Rio had more balls because everyone had such killer tone, in my opinion. So these, yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. The album. sounds that's- on Rio contributed to why I think that recording is so uh, it kicks so much butt, you know. Um, so I had the same experience that these, um, you know, these other musicians had with that guitar solo Mm -hmm. uh i think alex's tone when he's when he's playing clean he's kind of whispering and tiptoeing around in this solo then he flips the switch on his guitar and kicks on the distortion with his foot it was (laughs) such a drastic change that it gave it gives me goosebumps when i hear that recording now i do too and and did you notice too i think it's maybe six minutes if i remember it that incredible bass sort of uh, it's about a thirty seconds of Kenny on the bass where they, they they're pivoting, you know, da na na na, and then they they it's almost like a stutter, and then there's you hear you hear Kenny just going crazy, and I know him. <laughs> when you said the documentary, the guy from the Rage Against the Machine said that that he just thought that was insane too. You know, that was the the thing he loved about it, the Getty's playing. But I it's a, yeah, that's my favorite part. You know, the, that six to seven minutes, I think it is. So. 
I just think I just think Getty's tone, especially Getty's tone on Rio, was just out of this world, and and that that tone continued until the Tess Reco tour. I uh, yeah. very very happy with the sound. But, but you know, I mean, I will say this: I'm okay that they pivoted and, and went into different areas. I, I like. I mean, there's Permanent Waves is probably my second favorite. You know, I I, I said to you, I think in an email, Kings, Hemisphere, Waves, and Pictures. That period's my favorite that I listened to the most. Mm-hmm. Quintessential Rush, but I was okay that they pivoted. You know, I mean, I, they probably got out of this of this sort of genre. They got out what they could. And, you have and, to pivot. They, you have to. I mean, I I don't want to start getting corny and like quoting Neil, but you have to change. Um, that's where bands get stuck. I think is when they don't change. Yeah. There are there are some poppier rock bands that I listen to that I really enjoy who are on their seventh album and it sounds identical to their first <laughs> stuff. It's you know, you're seven albums in, Rush was like three different bands by then and yeah. you're just you know, that's an exaggeration, but um you do well, have to and, change. And you that, have to take a risk, you know? Yeah. That was the nice thing about the forty when they went back from you know, most recent back. You can just I mean that just the fact that they did that and could do it and and pivot through all their periods still and play it that well. I mean that that's that's why I originally liked them when I like I said when I was a little kid sort of exposed to it and stuck with them. I mean there's all kinds of other music I like too, but you know I have the big the big Rush fandom was Rush geek and uh, you know it stuck with me 35 40 years almost. So. And it gives us a nice oppor- a really cool opportunity to find fans who only you know, stopped listening after moving pictures or whatever the case may be. And a lot of the times those fans I run into don't even know other records exist. They say Rush, yeah, is, that, that, Ru- Rush is still touring. When did they start touring again? They never stopped. <laughs> you know, effectively, they never stopped. Um, I like their, their early 90s stuff that was heavy. That was cool. Yeah. We talked about that. So I like, like their new... Their- have Clock you had work, that experience, great. like where you meet someone like that and you and you give them like a mixed CD? You're like, just just check this out. Like this is some this is some '90s rush. This is early 2000s rush. Like stuff you didn't know existed. Let me know what you think. Um, because or maybe they heard maybe they heard something from Power Windows and thought it was garbage and it's just stopped yeah, listening. Yeah. And and you know yeah. they might really like Animate or One Little Victory or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I think there's there's a lot and. I I don't know. I part of that age, you know. I mean, they move on different points in their life. But yeah, that the stuff in the '80s, the Hold Your Fire. No, it's not my favorite, but I, I listen to it still. But it's kind of a shame because I mean, you're missing out on what ten albums post moving ten to twelve. I think it is. Right, yeah, you're, you are <laughs> it's missing. It's a that. large cat. It's a large catalog, and and they do a good blend when they do their when you see them in concert of mixing some of the old with the newer. I mean, I'm. Just, I'm impressed. You know the funny thing. I, I last thing I did. I'm, I'm going to show off my research. But you know how they did the time machine with the moving pictures, which you know they played the whole album. They had just asked him at the end, and I read an article on that. I think it was in Spin or whatever it was. And, and Getty said that he said, "Well, most of our really hardcore Rush fans would probably like us to do the the Hemispheres album." But they didn't think they could still do it, and, I, and I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, it'd be like a 30 minute concert. It'd be, it'd be <laughs> over so quick. <laughs> I would love to see it. I'd pay, you know. Right. What What's funny is I would pay regardless of what they're playing. You would too, probably. You know? Yeah, yeah. No. Uh, but it it would be cool. But it, it that's got to be, you know. I've heard a partial 
you know, I never got to see it. I was too young to go to see them when they did the Hemisphere tour. I, I would give a left arm to do it. But I've heard at least, you know, snippets of it. There's some YouTubes. People have uploaded something. It's, it'll be, it, I don't know how they pulled that off live. I mean, like a 20-minute song, it's just amazing. It's in, yeah, I mean, just chops wise, like to have the chops to play that stuff live every day is is impressive. You know, my my dad often complains when he hears recent versions, live versions of YYZ, because mm-hmm. he noticed, and I don't notice this as much. Maybe it just doesn't bother me, but he says in the uh, during the guitar solo in the middle of the song, not like the bridge, but. Uh, Getty's not playing. He's he's almost like cheating. He's really not playing the bass part from the record where he's going nuts. Um, he, he's almost resting or something. I wonder if any of that happened back then, or 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 maybe like he never would have considered it. He he would take any opportunity to shred on his bass. Yeah. Or or you know, same with Alex, same with Neil. I wonder if there were shortcuts involved on that tour. I bet there must have been. I and mean, there's just no human way. I think you can. Because I never read anything about how many takes or how they cut up the song to record the book two. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen versions of the Strangiato, not not tour, but like by about eighty eighty one, and they go through the whole thing. It's no problem. But I've just never seen the full eighteen twenty minute Hemispheres live. So I, I you know I, I would assume they probably cut it up to begin even on that tour. They almost have to. Sure, it's an interesting question. How do you feel about that album? It, I mean, you're ending the 70s period here because we're going to head to the 80s with permanent wave. What's your is this your favorite album from the 70s collection of them? Uh that's a good question. I think it would be a toss up between that this and 2112. Just like when we talked about the epics, it was virtually a toss up between those two epics. Um yeah, yeah I I think I would say that. I know, I know correspondent Chad we shared of our three favorite albums we shared two and differ on one. I have snakes and he has hemispheres. I know he mm-hmm. really, really digs hemispheres, and I'd, I, I'd like to think I share enough musical taste with Chad to say, yeah, that th- this this album has very, very few flaws, if any. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, 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 what does a flaw even mean? And I, I don't, I can't label anything <laughs> as a flaw. Um, maybe one or two things. <laughs> I don't know. You know what I mean, though. There, there's really nothing you can look at and go, "This is a weak spot on this album." Yeah. Do you have a favorite song on the album? Um. Uh, no, I, I can't do that. Like, <laughs> you know, as as much as I want to say La Via, I I think La Via probably is the closest to the top. But the others are 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 really good in their own ways. Like I said about the two shorter tracks. They they do a lot in a short amount of time, and sort of narrate the story very well musically. But uh, yeah. La Via, like let's get into music theory world again. When I write music, like modern jazz music, uh, there's one chord progression I really like to use, and I kind of overuse it a bit. And it's I noticed today, it's the progression that's mainly featured in La Via Strangiato during the guitar solo, and throughout most yeah. of the song actually. Uh-huh. Um, and maybe that's why that sounds really good to me. <laughs> what about you? Yeah, Do you have I, one that stands out? I, I like Livia probably a little bit better than Hemisphere, but they're so close. They're two of my favorites. I just, you know, I can't enlighten you about anything musically. I mean, you, you can analyze it better, but I know when I heard it and it was just out a month out, it was, even as a little nine, ten-year-old kid, 
I was just, wow, amazing. And it's, it still hits me that way. And uh, that's why I like the album so much. It's just, it's, it's not like many other uh, bands. I know like people like Floyd and whatnot, and they, they're, they got considerable talent. But I just think this album of the seven, it's my favorite one, obviously, but uh, I still feel that way when I, when I heard it live, you know, when they played the previous, you know, it's like, wow, they can, you know, they, they still can produce this. And it's, mm. it's, it's nice, you know, it's, it's, it's like a nice childhood memory that stays with me. Cause I, I can, you know, refer back to it all the time. It's good stuff. I'm glad, uh, I'm glad to have had somebody on who can, who can really dig into it. And, and, you know, you were there when it happened. It, it, it's always cool to talk <laughs> to people who are, have that experience. Yeah, I, I, I wish I could have seen them in, in concert, but they don't let nine-year-olds in yeah, right. too much. <laughs> At least not back then. <laughs> right, and the places they were playing, I imagine. Yeah, uh, yeah. So Rush is six, album in, six albums in, and they've got two naked guys on two albums. That's great. <laughs> I, I would have yeah. been a little weirded out by that. Yeah, it was a little weird. I, I, mean, I was a little taken back. I was embarrassed when I first saw it. I thought, what the heck is this supposed to be? But but and he's got this Luke Skywalker haircut because <laughs> that was big at the time too, right. Star Wars. So, and I noticed he looked like Luke Skywalker. He does. I'm looking at him right now. You're totally right. <laughs> I I, uh, I remember as a teenager, one summer we walked into like some shop near the a beach, and they had all these band T-shirts, and they had the Starman, and I wanted to buy it, and my mom wouldn't let me because she's like, "You're not gonna wear a shirt with a naked dude on it." And in retrospect, <laughs> that was actually probably a fantastic thing that that my mom probably, saved me from. But, yeah, you know, I, I'm actually glad that the, the Star Man is more of their uh, more of their logo than the dude standing on the brain naked. I'm, a, I'm calling him Luke from now on. By the way, <laughs> he does look, look like at Luke him. Skywalker. He looks just. You guys got to check it out. He looks. He does look like Luke Skywalker. Yeah, um, and that's that's yeah, that's the thing. It was right right after Star Wars, a year later. So. There you go. Maybe that's on purpose. I don't know. Yeah, it could be him. Although Luke Skywalker has one less real hand. Yes. We know that for sure. Very true. <laughs> David Sprick, thank you very much for coming on the show again. Hey, and I want to thank you. It's uh, it's nice going down memory lane with these albums, and uh, I look forward to hearing the rest of them. Thanks so much, man. So I want to bring, bring on a friend of mine to talk about genres uh, specifically metal and progressive metal in the late 70s and how it relates to Rush. In the past, I've been talking about Rush, like more, you know, the progier Rush from the 70s and using the word metal, and I get a lot of, I don't want to say hate mail. It's not hate mail, but it's people saying, you can't you can't use the word metal with Rush. It's, it's not a thing. So now there's this, like, quasi-debate going on. Um, this is a guitarist, a really talented guitarist that I went to school with, it's connected in New York. Rocky Rockwell, how's it going? It's going well, Jay. How are you doing? Good. And, you know, I just realized you have a pretty stellar podcast name. <laughs> uh, yeah, I should start one of these myself. <laughs> Rocky Rockwell. I like it. Um, so Rocky has a, a really impressive background in metal, or whatever that means. And Rocky, let me preface this by saying I hate genres as they are today. I think that Every band that forms thinks they need to have their band name and a brand new genre for their band. Like every band that starts thinks they're a new genre, which I think yeah. eliminates the need. You know, genres mean nothing at that point. So, uh, tell me first. Tell us uh, maybe your relation with Rush, if any, and who your favorite bands are. What do you listen to the most? 
Okay, so first of all, I'm going to be the person who actually reinvents metal when my hot new polka prog metal <laughs> album drops next month. Oh, cool. Okay. <laughs> we'll look forward to that. Send us the SoundCloud link. <laughs> so, um, Jay, I really like all things metal. I like all sorts of different genres within metal. Um Probably people are going to think that I'm hackneyed for this, but uh, my two favorite bands within metal are Metallica and Iron Maiden. Mm-hmm. Um, but within that, I also like uh, tons of other bands that like help start thrash metal and help start the uh, new wave of British heavy metal and stuff. And uh, yeah, it's definitely my favorite genre has had a huge impact on my life and was how I learned how to play guitar. Uh, so if I say, you know older like like what rush are you familiar with do you know do you know like cygnus x1 in hemispheres or obviously 2112 you're probably familiar with oh yeah yeah 2112 and moving pictures i'm very familiar with okay and then i'd say a little bit with like uh fly by night which that was their second album right that's right yes and and really Um, really their first venture into the prog world as neil neil peart joins the band and they go in a more progressive direction yes so am, am i wrong to say that you know, like twenty one twelve is a great example. That that's metal in the time in nineteen seventy six or seventy seven or whenever it was released. That was that was metal back then. Is that wrong? Well, here's so, so here's uh, what's what's kind of funny about this whole thing because um, I can actually kind of relate this also with Led Zeppelin because uh, people always have an argument about whether Led Zeppelin is a metal band or not. And in my mind, they are not technically. However they were kind of like the father or grandfather to heavy metal. So Rush, in my mind, like, are they a tried and true, like, metal band, perhaps? I don't know, because, like, they, you know, definitely have songs like uh, River Shed and stuff, but, like, um, that, uh, they, but they, they definitely gave birth to that genre. They kind of took what Genesis and Yes did, and they definitely put a more hard rock tinge on it. So hard um, hard rock is the key there. Like at the time, metal wasn't quite the terminology, right? Hard rock yeah. was a more accurate description of what Rush was the the spin Rush put on Genesis. Yeah, and a lot of people were coming out of the '60s and they were still using the term acid rock. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that was uh, definitely acid rock was kind of what people used in place of metal for a lot of years. I see. Um, but yeah. Um, but Rush, like, yeah, I don't know if I would call them a, a, a metal band, per se, but they certainly had a direct impact on progressive metal. Um, just the way that their songs are written, the uh, guitar tones and everything, um, the, 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 the drum styles, it's, it's definitely had a, had a direct impact. You can tell that they're heavier than Genesis and Yes, you know, just by listening <laughs> to them. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and and to be clear, I don't think I would put the word metal onto Rush at Moving Pictures. I think after Moving Pictures, no question that that's not metal anymore. Like you said, Red Barchetta, while it's heavy at times, and everything on that album gets heavy. I don't think it's metal. Like the older that that progier stuff, the twenty minute epics felt a little metal to me. But but again, I'm I'm your age. We're twenty four, twenty five. We don't we don't really know. For sure, what it was like back then. You have a much better grasp than I do. Um, yeah, and by the way, before your listeners decapitate me, I realized that earlier I accidentally said Red Bruschetta. That's it was a slip of the tongue. It's from a joke that my friends and I have. That's a de- that's a delicious uh, food, correct? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
We'll just we'll just pretend like it was the phone signal that, yeah. that messed that up. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, Rocky, I talk about periphery a lot on my show, as much as my listeners are probably starting to hate it. Um, but Rocky is a, uh, also a periphery fan, and yeah. why I think it's relevant to Rush is because uh, it seems to be what Rush started. That that's what you know periphery represents what that is today. And I think that's just that's just where the genre went. Um, I it's easy to say you know the connection has been made. Rush uh, out of Rush came Dream Theater, and in the periphery world, while I have not heard any of them mention anything about Rush as an influence, they will be quick to mention Dream Theater as an influence. So can I say <laughs> it went Rush Dream Theater periphery, or is that too far removed? Um, there's definitely a lot of things that happened in the middle there. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> um, because periphery has like a million influences coming into that band. Yeah. Um, but I definitely think that out of like, uh, uh, the, the 70s and, uh, early 80s rush, um, that was definitely a direct impact upon dream theater. Um, for, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Dream Theater kind of took that and then they went heavier. And they also put um, a lot of like the jazz fusion stuff on it. As well. I, I don't want to say that Dream Theater is a jazz fusion band. That's not true at all. No, but those but, influences like, are evident. Yes, completely. Um, John Petrucci, he loves Al Diniola and like Alan Holdsworth and guys like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they and they went to friggin' Berkeley. So yeah, they definitely had those influences for yeah. sure. Um but I, I really do believe that the that after Rush, um, well, it's kind of funny because in the '80s there were a lot of albums that were not tried and true progressive metal albums, but they had tons of influences in that direction. Great example: uh, my favorite album of all time, Master of Puppets by Metallica, um, had uh, tons of elements that like kind of started to incorporate longer songs. Um, some uh, kind of fun time signature stuff. And then their album after that, Justice for All, definitely incorporated a lot of that stuff as well. In fact, one of their biggest songs in the world, one, uh, you know, it's an eight-minute song um, that has, like, several different parts to it and uh, several key changes. And it's, uh, um, you know, that song, I would definitely say, is going in a progressive direction. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people point to the first, quote-unquote, progressive metal album as, um, at least in in the the mainstream a lot of people point to an album um uh like operation mindcrime by queensreich um either that or uh probably um uh faith's warning um, they had an album called awaken the guardian that was also a big like breakthrough so Queens- for that genre. queensreich can maybe fall so they kind of fall between rush and dream theater um yeah i would say so because that album operation mindcrime that was a um it's funny because when you listen to it today, having listened to like the stuff that other prog bands have come up with since then, it really doesn't even sound that out there. But at the time, it was a metal album with it's a concept album um, that has a, a really neat story to it and everything. And that was not really done yet within metal. And so that was the kind of cool thing about it. Uh, tell me about, uh, you know, I just don't know. I uh, ignorantly said that Axl Rose was a guitarist a few episodes ago. I like I just <laughs> I I just don't have the interest in classic rock outside of Rush 
to do the research, you know what I mean? Or to just to have that knowledge off the top of my head. So tell me about Metallica and tell me about Iron Maiden because I've heard of, obviously metal is in the name for one of those bands, um, but yeah. I've heard <laughs> Iron Maiden being kind of that name thrown around uh, as the the genesis, you know, no pun intended, the genesis of metal or the <laughs> phrase metal. Uh, when when was Metallica first a thing? When was Iron Maiden first a thing? How are they perceived and how are they labeled? Um, so this is oh god, I could talk for hours about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, I'll go try to make it as condensed as possible. <laughs> um, so Iron Maiden uh, came before Metallica, and they were in the UK, and um, their bassist does not want to admit this. But a lot of people really believe that they were heavily influenced by the punk scene in the UK. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Punk was, was huge in the UK at the time. Um, and there were some other bands uh, that were British that were popping up at the time, like Diamond Head, where they kind of embraced that they were influenced by punk. But Iron Maiden, they really tried to ignore that. But if you listen to their first two albums with their uh, first singer, Paul Deanna, you can definitely hear a lot of punk influence in there. Um, however, um, after they got their uh, second singer, uh, Bruce Dickinson, and even a little bit on the Paul Deanna stuff, you can hear them playing around with like some longer songs and stuff, and especially on their um, album Power Slave, there's a song called Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which is based on the epic poem, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and it's a 13-minute song with a lot of different sections in it. And stuff. I don't think there's any crazy time signature stuff in it or anything, mm-hmm. but definitely the songwriting there is unconventional, um, which is kind of cool. Um, and then uh, uh, Metallica was basically, they were very influenced by uh, bands like Iron Maiden, but also very influenced by the aggressive um, hardcore punk that was going on in the U.S. Bands like uh, Minor Threat and Black Flag and stuff like that. And so basically they were like, well, what if we took those two and put them together and made like a, a punk band with more like technical guitar playing? And that was kind of how thrash metal was born. And that's how you get bands like Metallica, Megadeth, Anthrax, Slayer, Testament, Exodus. Uh, a lot of them came out of the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them came from some other places like New York and stuff, Anthrax from New York. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that was kind of, uh, the, the big thing about, uh, metal in the eighties. <laughs> metal in the eighties. I'd be, I'd be curious to, I've, I mean, I'm curious to do this to any metal or rock listener to show you some rush that maybe you haven't heard, like some nineties rush or, or uh, late eighties rush or even brand new rush to see how, you know, just to see your reaction, especially you, somebody who has that ear and has a much greater sense, a much broader sense of where it lies in the context. You know what I mean? Okay. Um, now, you mentioned, like, New Rush, like uh, Clockwork Angels. Uh-huh. Um, I, I do like that album quite a bit. Oh, you've heard it uh, up and down? Yes. Wow, okay. Yeah, yep. Um, I bought it. Um, I left it in my mom's car. My mom loves it, too, now. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Um, yeah, that that's rare. Um, that album definitely has um, a lot of a lot of moments that kind of like flirt with what I would call metal. Sure, um, you know I don't want to call it again. Don't want to call it metal, but definitely flirting with it. songs like you know like the rest of like Headlong Flight and stuff and Caravan. That's like the really heavy one. On yeah, there, right? yep. I, yeah, I would argue that's, that's one song. of the, like regardless of how quote unquote metal it is, it's just a heavy and it's 
a heavy this there's a better word it, it's a dense song and uh it's one yeah. of my favorites a lot of people are a lot of fans argue like or they they claim that clockwork is really the big return to the roots and, and to the the hard rock that rush had a long long time ago you know there are several other albums through their career where you can point to that and be like that was the return to the to the roots but um it's generally accepted that Clockwork was the big one. Like, you know, this is an, a yeah. no BS album. Let's just rock. Yeah. So it's cool that you've heard that. I didn't think you had heard any of the new stuff. Yeah, I love that album. That, that's, a, that's a great album. Fantastic and stuff. Now, well, now all my listeners love you, regardless of what you say about Red Bruschetta. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is really cool, Rocky. Uh, this is, like, exactly what I wanted to know. And now I feel like I have a little bit a better grasp uh, if I ever need to name any members from the Guns N' Roses, I will I will call you first. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. They're getting back together. Uh, they're having a reunion this year at uh, Bonnaroo. And I realized that asking uh, you to talk, you know, in two minutes about Iron Maiden and Metallica is like you calling me onto your Iron Maiden podcast and saying, uh, so tell me about Rush in two yeah. minutes. <laughs> uh, what do you want to know? Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about their three albums, 2112, Moving Pictures, and Permanent Waves. Please tell me about those, yeah. <laughs> those three albums they made. <laughs> All right, Rocky, it was great talking to you. It was great talking to you too, dude. Um, hey, you said uh, that you'd love to have me listen to some of the uh, rest stuff that uh, you would recommend. I would love to have you send that to me. And uh, then, because right now your listeners are like, oh, this idiot only knows a handful of albums by them. You know, maybe I can send you an email after listening to some of that stuff. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll, uh, I'll throw it at the listeners. The listeners and I will make a, a playlist for you of like 10 songs that we feel you would you need to hear that maybe you haven't heard. It sounds good. That's All right, we'll, like we'll, we'll collaborate <laughs> on it. So if, if you're listening, which you are, uh, you, you help me decide. Send me an email, rushcast2112 at gmail.com, and we'll decide what tracks Rocky probably hasn't heard, but maybe he should to um, <laughs> to broaden me, his your ways. yeah your 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 perception of music is so narrow <laughs> <laughs> cool all right man well, Jay thank you so much and you have a great rest of the day buddy thanks dude it's really good to catch up with you you too buddy see ya uh, all right see ya.